The light that shines above Become the light that shines in us There's no darkness in your way So have your way
All right, I'll get us started tonight. Glad everybody's here. We'll dig into some passages tonight and actually look at application. How would I, how would I read this passage? How would I interpret it? How would I apply it? So we'll actually get to do... I like where the book went. If you've been following me through the book at all, How to Eat Your Bible is the book we're going through. We're in the fourth and final week of the series. But if you've been going through the book, you may notice the last chapter, the next to the last chapter where he talks about application. He does a fantastic job But he only picks maybe one or two passages and digs into them. So I wanted to do a little bit more of that tonight. So this is the biggest night where we really, we start where the book starts, but then we kind of go off into our own own place and look at more passages than he did. So I wanted it to be super practical for you. I will open us in prayer and then we'll dive in. Glad everybody's here. I've got it turned on the warmest of the cold but it's only about four degrees from one side to the other side, so I think that's what Robert told me. So, Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you, um, thank you so much for the ability and the privilege to open your word. I think Christians hundreds of years ago, especially a few thousand years ago, they would give anything for the opportunity to have all of your word right there in their hands. They would be amazed. So, Help us remember how important that is. Never take that for granted. And Lord, uh, thank you for your word and all its richness. I just pray that your spirit would lead this time as we dig into it and look more at how do we apply ways uh, to apply uh, your word to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So week four, how to eat your Bible. I've introduced every week this topic of the fact that our culture is going through a famine particularly a famine for God's word, but not because of a shortage of the product, but because of an unwillingness to consume the product. So it's a forced, self-inflicted famine. Very odd concept. Most people would never think that that would be a thing, but it is with some things, and it certainly is with the Bible. So again, the book we're going through, How to Eat Your Bible, Nate, Nate Picklewicks. Tonight, we will depart from the book more than we have any other week because we'll spend a little bit more time Digging into a few passages. So Second Peter is where we're going to start. Get your turning fingers ready. Or your thumb. If you lick your thumb first, get your thumb ready. Second Peter 1. We won't go that fast. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 3 and 4. Now look, obviously this series assumes that you trust that this is God's word. This is not an apologetic series to attempt to show you that it is, although those are useful too. And this series also assumes that you want to apply God's word. You, you have a hunger for it. You want to learn how to approach God's word uh, and look at more ideas about that, uh, how to apply God's word. So right off the bat, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 has something really interesting to say. 2 Peter 1 if you do like me, you're in 1 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, he's talking about knowing Jesus in verse 2. And, and in that word, knowledge is not knowing about. It's a personal, intimate knowledge. Anytime you, anytime you in the Greek, if you want to intensify a word, you stick a preposition on it. And we would never do that in English. You can't do that in English, but you can in Greek. And what, when, you, when you add a preposition to it, it intensifies the, the word. It dials it up. So if you know Jesus, 
but then you add epi, just this little preposition onto the word gnosis or knowledge. It, it, it means experiential knowledge, more intimate knowledge. It dials up the intensity of that word. So he's talking about knowing Jesus, and in verse 3 he says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So what he basically just said is, God gives you everything you need to live for him, to point people to him, all those things, when you're saved. That if you want to think of it like any human analogy breaks down if you press it too hard, right? Because it cannot describe a perfect holy God, an infinite God. But in this case, a basic analogy would be a bank account. That God puts all the money you're ever going to need in that account in one deposit. You don't need any more. Everything you're ever going to need to buy, money's already in there. But you have to write the check. That's basically what Peter's saying. So as we spend time in God's word, look, God has given us, through his word, it's sufficient. He's given us everything we need. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention had a 20-year fight over the inerrancy of God's word. Is it really God's word, or is it just some made-up myths that we can't really depend on came from God? They've slowly recovered and, and won that battle and come back. But now the battle, with the same convention that, that plagues them right now, is the battle for the sufficiency of Scripture. Is this enough? Or do we have to go outside of this to social justice movements, to this, to that, to this, to that, and add that into the church, add that to God's word? No, we don't. But a lot of people in the Southern Baptist Convention right now are incredibly confused, and they think that we do. And a lot of the guys, one of my best friends helps lead the Conservative Baptist Network, which is a thread inside the SBC that is, is trying to influence them back toward conservatism and trusting that the Bible is sufficient. Every area of your life that's important, that God has, God has something to say about it in here. If you don't know that, you maybe you just you haven't found it yet. But, so as we dig into applying different verses, I just want you to understand, this book, I mean, God wrote this in, in such a way that it, it tells us everything we're going to need to know. Now, it doesn't answer every question. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? I have no clue. Doesn't matter. And, and some questions, they do matter. What's heaven going to look like? How, how am I going to interact with so-and-so? What's gonna... It doesn't tell me that, but I don't need to know it yet. So it tells me everything I need to know. So if you're trusting Jesus as Savior, Peter tells you God has already given you everything you need to live for him. So when you're reading and studying God's word, a lot of people, remember we've talked about getting the right order, right? A lot of people put the end at the very beginning, they read God's word, and then they immediately ask, how does this apply? How does this apply to me? But application is the final product that comes from learning what the passage says and what the passage means. Application is one of the last steps, not the first step. But sometimes we do that. We read, and then we immediately want to jump to application. But I hope that what you've seen through part of this series is, um, if you're coming in, for example, at this last, during this last week, I want you to also back up and listen to weeks one through three, uh, which can be found at kelview.com under the sermons tab, if y'all did not know that. Um, also, podbean, kelview.podbean.com uh, takes you to their site. They host all our Wednesday night audio, and you can go back and listen to the series back to 2014, I think. So, 
as we look tonight at how to apply God's word, uh, we have to realize that we wouldn't care about that question if we already didn't have the desire to submit to what it says, right? None of you would give one hoot about that question if you didn't care to submit to what it said. If you didn't desire to obey what God tells you, you wouldn't care how to apply God's word. Why, why am I studying this? It doesn't matter. I'm not going to submit to what it says anyway. The very fact that you want to properly apply scripture shows your desire to obey what it says. So tonight, I'm making the assumption that those two things are working together. Application with obedience, with a spirit of submission to the text. All my preaching profs typically said, the text is king. Whatever the text says, goes. Properly understood, obviously, taken in context. And so, we can talk all we want to tonight about application, but if I don't have the attitude of wanting to submit to the text, if I don't want to obey God's word, I'm spinning my wheels. It doesn't do any good to talk about how to apply the text. So, authority comes from God. Who has the right to tell any of us what to do? That's a fundamental question, right? It is a question we should ask. Authority comes from God. He kind of thinks he's God and he thinks we aren't. He's the creator and we're the creation. So authority doesn't come from us. It comes through his word and from his word, but ultimately it comes from God through his word to you. It doesn't come from you. So I say that to say this. When we're looking at how do I apply this text, how does the passage apply to me, it's also important not to over-personalize and read what you want it to mean and force that onto the text. In other words, if God really is the authority and not you, then you have to learn first what's God saying in this passage before you can actually properly apply it. If you rush to application, then we're prone to force on the text what we want it to say. Does that make sense? Okay, so how do you apply God's word? Let's walk through some of this. So that's the introduction in your notes. If you didn't get a copy of that, they're on the back table. Now the section, applying God's word. Y'all see that in your notes? Applying God's word. Okay, so that's where we are. Let's do some of this, okay? Let's actually do it tonight. Applying God's word, number one, there's a couple of things. Number one, things to know. There are passages that will tell you things to know. It's important knowledge. You need to have it for a particular reason. I'm trying to keep this real simple tonight, but we'll dig into some passages. One, things to know. So let's dig into that. For example, how does this passage help me know God? That's one example. That's an important question to ask. A lot of questions do. Uh, A lot of passages do answer that question. So God's powerful. He's the creator of everything. There are going to be passages that say that God has all authority over everything else and everyone else. These passages are important. Why? Well, if I haven't studied those passages, I might be prone to think that I'm the authority in my life. And you're, trust me, if you think you're the authority, ultimate authority in your life, you will ruin your life. God is. You'll find passages that show very clearly and illustrate that God is patient, but you'll also find him that he's just. Eventually, he has to deal with sin. You'll find him that God is loving, but you'll also find passages that teach that love can manifest as discipline. He, right? You remember? He says he, he disciplines those whom he loves. If you've never been disciplined, Not punishment, Jesus took that on the cross, but if I've never been disciplined, I would have to question if I'm really a child of God, that the New Testament teaches that. There are passages that say that God's gracious, but he's also firm when he needs to be. Uh, God is above and separate from his creation, that's true, but he's also intimately involved in his creation. He doesn't just 
create us and go, okay, you guys take care of your own problems. I'm going to set you to spin off on your own, and I'm going to be over here playing around at golf. He doesn't do that. He's patient, but he, there will be a judgment day where the chance to repent is past. <laughs> it's over. So go to Ephesians 1. Let's dig into one, an example of one of these. Look at Ephesians 1. So under applying God's word, number one, there's things to know. And how does this passage help me know God? Ephesians 1 is a fantastic example. Colossians 1 is great about Christ, but let's look at Ephesians 1. It gives us really all three. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I'll walk us through this. So there's, very, there's something very important to know in this passage. Paul wants you to know this. Blessed be the God and Father, in this introduction to the church of Ephesus, he's writing, blessed be the God of, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ah, oh, that sounds similar, uh, consistent with what Peter just said, what we read from him. Just as he chose us in him, now who's it talking about? Verse three, God and Father. Did you catch that? Okay, so it's talking about the Father. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons, so we're sons and daughters, by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So he loves to do this. To the pra- and then there's this phrase. Listen, verse six. So remember this phrase. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Did you catch that? Okay, by which he also made accept- us accepted in the beloved. Okay, so he just talked about the father the Father's role in my salvation, and then he ends it with this phrase, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You might not catch that the first time you read it through. So remember a few weeks ago when I said, you want to read a letter like if you're reading Ephesians. You want to read it through several times. I would read it through 10, 20 times even. Keep reading it, keep reading it. Things are going to, uh, patterns are going to begin to jump off the page at you. Write those down. So you're going to see in verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The first time you read that, might not stick out at you. The tenth time you read it, it will. Here's why. Look at verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood. Well, now who's it, who's it talking about? It's talking about the son, okay? The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in, all, in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have in- obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ, we're still talking about the Son here, should be, look at this phrase, to the praise of his glory. Does that phrase sound familiar? Okay, well, he just finished saying, Father, Here's his role in your salvation to the praise of his glory. Now let's talk about the son. He talks about his role in your salvation to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 13. In him uh, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed. Now he's going to talk about the third person of the Trinity. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or literally the down payment. You don't put a down payment on something that you don't intend to fully redeem and purchase. This is the point. God gives us 
his spirit, and he intends to fully purchase us in glorification, our body and all, correct? And here's what's cool. Back then, I found this out. Back then, you would give a down payment in kind. Down payments were typically in kind. In other words, if you were going to make the final purchase with gold, you would give the down payment in gold. If you were going to give the final purchase in livestock, you would make the down payment in livestock. So what's God give us as the down payment? Himself. What are we going to get to enjoy when we're in heaven with him at the final purchase, the glorification? We're going to be right there with him. We're going to be in his presence. So I think that's interesting. Anyway, uh, that's not the main point, but that's interesting. So it says, the Holy Spirit of promise, he's the down payment or the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So he's purchased me, if he's saved me. And then look at the phrase. What's the next phrase in verse 14? To the praise of his glory. Does that sound familiar? Okay, so you're seeing a pattern. Father, here's his role in your salvation, to the praise of his glory. The Son, here's his role in your salvation, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit, here's his role in your salvation. We don't see any distinction of roles in the Trinity with creation. We just don't see it. There might have been, but the Bible doesn't say. But we do see a distinction in roles in the Trinity in your salvation. The Father chose. He sets up the whole plan. The Son walks that plan out and perfectly obeys it and accomplishes it. The Spirit applies and seals that plan for you personally and, and dwells and lives inside you and is your guide. So, so there you go. All three, so things to know. How does this passage help me know God? All three members in Ephesians 1 of the Trinity are involved in your salvation. That's an important fact to know. This also helps you understand baptism. Why are you baptized in the name, and and Jesus tells us to do this, why are you baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why wouldn't we just say God? Well, because what's baptism a symbol and remembrance of? My salvation. It doesn't save me, but it's, it's it's pointing back to that. It's symbolic of that. Well, all three members of the Trinity were involved in, in your salvation. So they're all three there at your baptism. They're all three mentioned in your baptism, and that's, that's why we do that. I think they're saying holy, holy, holy in Isaiah's vision because they're addressing uh, the three persons of the Trinity. I don't know that. It may just be in Hebrew you can repeat something to make it magnificent, so they may just be doing that. I think maybe they're talking to the Trinity. But anyway, let's look at another example. Okay, so Philippians 2. Here's another great one. So when you're going through different passages, a lot of times what the passage is going to do, it's going to help you know God better, and that's one of the most important things you can do. Okay, Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. So hang a right and go Philippians 2, 1 through 8. And again, Paul, same author. He says, um, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, he's going to talk about the church's need for unity inside the church. Inside the local church, we need to have unity. He's going to talk about that. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort and love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, we all love God. That's our first love, period. And if we have that, we'll have unity. Having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, so our pastor talks about that all the time, self-seeking leads to death. Or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's the exact opposite of what the world tells us to do, but that's what Paul's telling us. Let each of of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Now, he says, here's the example for that. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he's going to explain that. Who, being in the form of God, so he's God, right? Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And it's, that Greek phrase is extremely hard to render in English. It essentially, some of your Bible uh, notes in your Bible will say something to be grasped or held on to. In other words, he was willing to not take advantage of the fact that he was deity all the time. Um, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's go through, yeah, let's stop there. Even the death of the cross. So, God wants you to be, God wants to be intimately involved in your life and your selflessness so that you can properly aim your love at other people. That's what Paul starts talking about. Your selflessness so you can properly aim your love out at others and not at yourself is based on the same attitude that Jesus showed you at the cross. By being willing, even though he was God and he didn't have to do this, being willing to set his privileges aside from time to, for, for a time and come and just live as a man and be tempted just like we are and go through the suffering and the agony and take on and, and wash his disciples' feet. I mean, doing things like that. Going to a cross to win you back to him. I mean, all those things. That's what Paul's saying. So don't you think it's important to know, okay, what's this passage telling me about God? In this case, Jesus. Well, he was willing to do all that. Well, then Paul's going to take that tidbit of information and in the verses right before it, what does he do with that? He says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. So you got to have this mind if you're going to be able to have unity inside the church. Y'all see that? So it's not just, knowledge about God is not just some pie in the sky idea that we should learn and then it has no application in our life. It, it applies to every part of your life. Um, Paul's just mentioning one, unity in the church. Now, what, uh, here's another question to ask on things to know. What else does this passage teach? Besides teaching me more about God, what else does this passage teach? Does it teach me about me? Does it teach me about relationships with someone else? You'll start to see consistent patterns emerge. Um, It will teach you about God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, It may say something else about humanity and sin, salvation. Uh, You may start to see patterns emerge throughout Scripture about uh, passages that tell you about the church. What's the proper role of the church? What am I supposed to be doing? In the, what, what in the world is the church? What's my role in it? What, what am I supposed to be doing in it? All those things. You'll start to see those themes emerge. Um, future things. Brother Barry, he taught through Revelation, didn't he? Okay, so a lot of that's going to be future things. You'll see those threads throughout Scripture. <clears throat> so let's look at um, another one. Let's take a left and go back to Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So all through the New Testament, you're going to see these patterns, and even the Old Testament, some of the principles are the same. You're going to see these patterns emerge of what's the church? What's my role in the church? What is that supposed to look like? Okay, Ephesians 4, here's just one, here's one of the puzzle pieces. Here's one of the pieces. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, He himself, 
He's talking about God giving gifts to men. Verse 8, he quotes God gave gifts to men from Psalm 68. Verse 11, he says, He himself gave some, some people, not all, some, to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, there's a little bit of debate of whether those are two different things. I think in the Greek, those, it, he's saying those are same, the same thing, pastor, te- pastor, teacher. To be a pastor, you need to be able to teach. And, and, um, for the, uh, why? Verse 12, here's why. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Edifying means building up, maturing. So over time, their job is to help you mature in Christ, okay? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, that means complete, mature, to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, part of the application from this verse is Paul's telling us, so you should be an active part of your local church, helping, now he's, his list here of, of giftedness is not exhaustive. Even in Corinthians, when he's given lists of spiritual gifts, it's not an exhaustive list. In one place he gives a few, and then in another place he gives a few different ones. But when I look at this verse, I see people who are called to help each other inside the church, and they're gifted in that particular calling. So you should be an active part of your local church, helping others grow in their walk with Christ through however God has gifted you. So the more you, again, very first reading, you might not catch all that, but when you read Ephesians over and over and over and over and over again, and there's benefit to that repetition, by the way, you're going to start to, things will jump out at you that may not at a first reading. In fact, the the author says he took uh, MacArthur's reading plan, John MacArthur's reading plan, and tweaked a few things about it, and in a seven-year period, he read through every book of the Bible, the New Testament, Old Testament a little bit fewer times. New Testament, 30 times every book. <laughs> so it's quite a few. But what he would do is he would, and I think there's credence to the, uh, there's a benefit here if you want to do it this way. What he would do is for a month or two, for a month or so, he would only focus on one book. If it's a shorter letter, maybe two. And he would just, so Ephesians, for a month, he would just read Ephesians, study it, listen to sermons about it look at commentaries about it, and just read through Ephesians over and over and over again. And then after that month, what do you know? You may not know Romans, but you know Ephesians. And and then maybe you go to Romans. Romans probably would take you, I think he said he took all summer. So that takes about three months, I think it took him. But three months, he just keeps reading Romans through again and again and again and again. And you'll see things and you'll see application that you may not have seen first. Okay, so that's number one, applying God's word, things to do, things to know, sorry. Number two, under applying God's word, things to do. I told you I was keeping this simple. <laughs> number two, under applying God's word, things to do. Sometimes the Bible will give me something, not just to know, but immediately give me something to do. So as you're studying a passage, you should ask, is this passage, beyond telling me something I should know, is this passage giving me something that I need to do? Is it correcting me or rebuking me? The Word of God will do that, and it does it perfectly. Is it leading me to repentance? You know, a sermon from Esther chapter 1 preached back in mm, 2007 was one of the, there's a dozen passages I could point you to, but was one of the primary passages that, a sermon that God used from 
from Esther chapter 1 to completely slap me in the face and, and rebuke me and correct me and lead me to repentance in a certain area of my life and um, uh, relationally with other people, specifically in relationships that uh, totally did a 180, but only because of the preaching and application of God's word. Is, is the passage you're in leading you to belief? Look at John 20, 30 and 31. So John writes his gospel. It's a great gospel. John says things in his gospel that you will not find in any of the others sometimes. He says a lot that you won't find in the three others. Uh, We think it was the last one written. We're not sure about that, but we think. Um, John certainly, we think, lived the longest, maybe. Lived a long, long time at least. And he puts details. I mean, when you read the gospel of John several times, you'll catch, wait a second. Matthew didn't know that. How in the world did John know that? He'll, so Matthew and John will be describing a situation, similar situation, and Matthew's saying something about some of the details. John will say, and here's what this guy was thinking. And you sit there and you go, how did John know what he was thinking? I mean, God and his Holy Spirit showed John things that, again, he wrote Revelation, right? Showed him things that uh, he didn't show anybody else. Look at John 20. 30 and 31. So sometimes when you're in a passage, it, uh, there's something to do, and sometimes it's leading you to simply believe. It's that simple sometimes. In other words, we try to overcomplicate application, but sometimes it is incredibly, it is, it is always, it's incredibly simple. Look at John 20, verse 30 and 31. John, at the end of his gospel, it, it would almost be beneficial to read the last couple chapters before you start chapter 1. But anyway, because he gives the reason he's reading the gospel. And truly Jesus did many other signs, verse 30, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In fact, he says, if I wrote them all down, you couldn't carry the book around. It'd be too big. But these are written. What I put in my gospel, I put down, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's main goal in writing his gospel account is so that you'll believe in Jesus and be saved. So sometimes it's leading you to simple belief, action of belief, or believing, doing something, believing. Okay, uh, what, sometimes you'll be in a passage and it will encourage you to persevere through a particular trial. Look at Romans 8. Let's look at an example of that and look at application of Romans 8. A lot of us in here have probably heard Romans 8.28, but I want to back up and look at 18 through 28. So Romans chapter 8, 18 through 28, because I want you to see the context. You, again, don't jump straight to application. You have to understand what's the text say and what does it mean before I can go to apply it. So to say, to catch what it says and what it means, I have to catch the context, don't you? I mean, it's important if a conversation is had in a certain context versus if it's in another one. So sometimes we jump straight to Romans 8.28. And what I'm saying is that's not bad, but it, you're not going to catch it all. Okay, let's jump to Romans 8.28, but then we'll back up. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's a memory verse in our Awana program, as it should be. It's a fantastic verse. But back up. Let's look at context. Look at 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings, catch that word, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. In other words, any suffering you're going through right now, I don't care what it is, is worth, and it it pales in comparison with how bad it is to how good it is going to be there. Did you catch? I mean, right off the bat, you get a flavor for the context of what he's saying. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So even creation, he explains, is, is waiting for this redemption. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption or decay into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, catch that word, groans, and labors with birth pangs together until now. So what's he saying? Suffering is not comparable to the glory that will be in the future. But look, even creation groans. Creation is going through suffering until it gets to be recreated. So even creation's groaning. Creation is decaying. What's this, um, is it the second law of thermodynamics? When energy changes form, you always lose some of that energy, so there's energy being lost. I mean, the guys who measure the speed of light have found out now that it's slowing down. The speed of light, it's not doing it very quickly, but it is, is, it's decaying. Everything is decaying. It's falling apart. Okay, um, so he says creation groans. Verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, so he's talking about us, the believers, even we ourselves groan. You catch that word? So creation's groaning, we're groaning. Uh, eagerly, what, why are we groaning? Well, we're eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. What's Paul talking about? The redemption of our body. Resurrection, rapture, the, yeah, we get, this body is decaying. Most of you feel that. <laughs> Sometimes more and more over, over time. Uh, eventually, our body loses the strength to hold on to our soul and spirit. That's where we call death. So it's decaying. What's he just saying? Well, yeah, and that's hard, and that's, that's suffering, and that is decaying, but it's going to be redeemed. For we, 24, for we were saved in this hope, the hope of the resurrection. But hope that is not seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if, uh, but if we hope for what we don't see, we eagerly wait with it for, uh, sorry, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now listen to this, verse 26. Verse 28 is only possible because of verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. So the Holy Spirit that God put in you when you were saved, not part of him, and you got to beg for the other half later, all of him in you when you were saved. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. So he's helping you. Well, how does he help me? Well, look, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Verse 27, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession, the Spirit, for the saints, that's us, according to the will of God. So anything the Holy Spirit prays for you, of course, is going to line up with the will of God. He's the third person of the Trinity. And then you come to verse 28. So because the Spirit does that for you, verse 28 is possible. And we know that all things work together for good to those who, are love, who love God, uh, to those who are called according to his purpose. So what you find when you look at Romans 8 is, look, when you're suffering, 
so intensely that you don't know, he even says in verse 26, you don't even know what to pray for. You don't know how to pray. When you're suffering so intensely that you don't know how to pray or what to ask for, some of you have been there. I've been there. You bring that pain to God and the Holy Spirit prays for you. That's what Paul just told us. He makes intercession on our behalf for us. That's why verse 28 is possible. That's why all things, it doesn't just happen because it happens. All things work together for good to those who are loved God and called according to his purpose because my, the pain, what's the context? Suffering, pain, groaning. My groaning so intense, I can't even put words to what I want to ask God for. I bring that pain to him. The third person of the Trinity in me prays to God for me. Now, some people try to use this passage to teach a private prayer language. I'm not mad at people that say they have one. I don't have one. Um, okay, but this passage isn't saying that. This passage is saying, you, the point is, you don't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit steps in and prays for you directly to God, God's perfect will, and that's why eight, verse 28 is possible. Because he does that for you, what other God would do that for you? Any of the Greek gods going to sign up to do that for you? No, they're too selfish. Um, is uh, Allah going to do that for you? No way. The Holy Spirit does that for you. And therefore, verse 28 is possible. All things work together for good. So, again, these are, when you're trying to catch application, so we looked at Romans 8, don't just look at one verse. Zoom out, grab the context, and maybe come back to that verse. And I think, so hopefully Romans 8, 28 takes on new life when you understand the context that it's in, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. Um, Does this passage show me how to reach someone else? Sometimes it'll show you how to do that. Does this passage show me how to pray effectively? Let's look at an example of that. Go to, take a hard right and go to 1 John 5. So not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, right before Jude and Revelation. <clears throat> 1 John 5. There will be passages that show you how to, what to do. For example, how to pray effectively. 1 John 5, 13 through 15. Uh, there's a movement that says, and it's not new, it's really old. There's a movement that says that you have God's creative ability in you, and so really all you need to do, that's being a part of his image, so really all you need to do is speak to something, and it either exists, ceases to exist, stops, whatever, just because you spoke to it. Okay, well, wait a second. Look at 1 John 5, 13 through 15. There's a, that's not really true. There's a caveat there is what I'm saying. There's a caveat. Um, In James 5, James says that Elijah was a man just like we're human. And it's no different than us. That's his point in James. And he said, and he prayed to stop rain for three and a half years and it stopped. His prayer had the power to control the weather. That's what James says in James 5. And he said, and Elijah is no different than you are. So that's true, but if you go back into the narrative, 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 18, if you look especially at 1836, what you'll find is God told Elijah to do that and to pray that. Elijah didn't wake up one day and go, you know, I have all of God's power, which he doesn't by himself. You know, I have all of God's power, so I'm kind of sick of rain. I'm sick of washing my truck every time it rains. I'm going to pray that it didn't rain for three and a half years, and then creation had to obey. No, 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 no. 
You go back and read the narrative. Go back and read the story in 1 Kings that James is referring to. And in verse 36, he says, I did all these things at your word. You told me to do this, so I did it. So that lines up perfectly with what John says. 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So what's the first thing? You're a believer, right? Okay. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything, so I have to ask, right? You have to ask. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. You got to ask. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything, and then what's the next phrase? According to his will. So it has to line up with God's will. I have to know God's will. There's another implication, uh, action item it calls me to. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have it. We have the petitions that we've asked of him. So what did John just tell us? Well, I got to be a believer. I've got to pray. And I have to know his will. Well, how in the world do you know his will? Well, this will lead you down another topical study of God's word where you look and you say, okay, how do I discover God's will? God's word has a whole lot to say about that. So these things I'm walking you through are things that when you look at applying God's word, some of the questions that'll help to ask. Um, How do you know, um, what I think you'll find in that search, by the way, is that A, the Bible will tell you what God wants, and B, the Holy Spirit will show you what God wants. So the Bible often will give you a principle, and then the Holy Spirit inside you will say, here's how you, in this specific situation, obey this principle. And, and they work together in that way. Um, I think sometimes we pit the Bible against the Holy Spirit, almost as if they're two competing forces. They're inseparably linked. I mean... Who, do, who inspired every word that's on this page, the Bible tells us? Holy Spirit led men of God to write, so he's the, uh, inspired it, he's the author of it, so don't you think he's also, God put him inside you once you're saved, that he's gonna lead me perfectly to obey this and apply it the right way. Well, of course he is. It's always gonna, those two things are always gonna line up. Um, the Spirit's gonna show, gonna lead you to obey God's will. I mean, every time. A lot of people say, well, you know, what's God's will in this situation or that situation? And a lot of times, the simple answer is to sit down and hit my knees and ask God to lead me as the Holy Spirit does lead me to obey his word right here. Boom, I look up two months later, I had obeyed God's will. He didn't miraculously say, here's my will for the next two months. Here's what I want you to do. But he, he led me every step of the way. That's often how it works. I'm not saying he never tells you something he's going to do in the future. He could do that if he wants to. But that's typically the way that it works. Um, let me, let's go to another passage, Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. So if you're in 1 John, hang a left and go just past James to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. Sometimes we like to, so back to the original statement I made. Does my prayer have the ability to control the weather? Yes, only if God tells me to pray that. If he doesn't, guess what it's going to do? Diddly squat. (laughs) You can say stop raining. You can tell the tornado to turn around and head the other way all you want. If it doesn't line up with God's will, it's not going to happen. So my, my journey in my prayer life is not to microwave 
drive-through, it's, it's crockpot. It's the slow cooker. I spend time with God in prayer, in his word, learning what he wants, and I obey that. It, it's, it doesn't usually happen at the snap of a finger. I mean, look, we can drive through Chick-fil-A and ten minute, five minutes later we have hot food, but that's not how this stuff works. This stuff is crockpot. When do you put a crockpot on for Sunday? I mean, what time? Early in the morning. When is it done? I mean, you know, when you get home from church, maybe for lunch, maybe for dinner. Depends on, I guess, how big it is, what it is. <clears throat> That's it. That's this idea. This, this is not microwave stuff. Okay, look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. The author of Hebrews tells us about the importance of intimacy with God, Jesus, our high priest, and spending time with him. And then he immediately includes in that the importance of spending time with each other. So he says in verse 24 and 25, here's another church thread, by the way. Here's another church application. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's part one of the reasons why we meet as a church. Not to um, say, why are they in my seat? <laughs> but, but to consider one another. Not to consider myself and my assigned seat. To consider the other person in order to stir up love and good works in them, in other words, not in me. Now, you do come to church to be fed personally. You do, yes. But that's, it, if it stops there, you're missing half the point. The other half of the point is that you're, you're edifying someone else. You're encouraging someone else. It's, it's for them. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now, does he give a frequency requirement in verse 25? No, he does not. He just says, what's the principle? Regularly, that's the principle. He didn't say five times a week. He didn't say once a week. He didn't say three times a week. He didn't say seven times a week. He doesn't say. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another, be, you know, being in each other's life. And so much more as you see the day approaching. So he, he's saying, look, here's the importance of meeting together, and here's what we're called to do when we do it. Now, when you're applying God's word, be careful not to only shine the light of God's word on one particular aspect of your life, but let it shine on every area of your life. Here's what I mean. Do I take Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, <clears throat> and shine the light of this passage? Because it is, right? Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It is. Do I shine the light of Hebrews 10, 24, to my life, only on the Sundays I participate in my local church and say, all right, I, I obeyed Hebrews 10 today, good. If, if something falls on a Sunday, uh, would you still apply Hebrews 10 if, if a birthday falls on a Sunday? Would you still shine the light of Hebrews 10, 24 on it? If a friend's party happened to fall on a Sunday, if a sports game or a championship game happened to fall on a Sunday, if a kid's event happened to fall on a Sunday, would you shine the light of Hebrews 10 into that area of your life? Now, I'm not saying, because the text isn't saying, that you have to go to church 52 Sundays a year to obey Hebrews 10. And he also didn't give a frequency requirement either. Legalism that the Pharisees taught would say that. And remember, this is a principle not a rule in the sense that he doesn't give any frequency requirement. It's just a principle. Do it regularly. Do it regularly. 
So there's no holy number of Sundays. <clears throat> so while there is no holy number of Sundays for going to church, as if, as if 45 is holy, but anything under that, 44, oh, you messed up, and one less than that number is disobedience, there's still the principle and whether church participation is a priority in your life or not. Or is it only a priority when you feel, for example, when you feel safe going to church? I'll use this as an example. Missionaries that will meet, there are missionaries on the other side of the world this week that will meet this Sunday despite the fact that it is unsafe to meet. They're risking their lives. They're risking their safety. They can be thrown in jail or prison. They're risking their lives. They can sometimes even be arrested or killed. They're risking their business, their reputation. I mean, I met a guy who was a wealthy in, oh, I, w- I want to get the country right, Iraq. I met a guy who was extremely wealthy in Iraq, owned a few car dealerships, wheeler dealer, great guy, who was, there's nothing wrong with being a custodian. I'm not saying that. Custodian's good work. It's important work. Who was mopping the floor of the men's dorm at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And that's, he was getting back on his feet here in the States because he had to drop all of his dealerships because when they found that when this group of guys traveling around killing people who had just come to Christ, who had just killed his friend who had come to Christ, and then his other buddy comes up to him and says, look, your mom knows you're saved. He didn't even tell his mom yet. And this group's looking for you. He had to drop all his dealerships, flee to Syria, get over here through Syria on refugee status. So if he wouldn't have done that, I would have killed him. They would have killed him. So we have people risking their lives, but what do they do? Now, do they give a frequency requirement? Do they say, okay, we have to do this seven days a week, and if we mess up one day and we only do six, God's going to be mad at us. No, 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 no. But they obey the principle. They meet regularly, even if they have to hide while they're doing it. And they meet, we call it the underground church. If they have to meet in someone's home or someone's basement, they meet. Um, what if I participate faithfully in my local gathering of believers, the church? And remember, we're not counting Sundays. We're simply making meeting a priority. That's the principle. But I don't do verse 24. In other words, I go just for me. I don't go and consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So what if you go to church just for what you can get out of it? If you're not serving, if you're not ministering to or praying for or considering or encouraging to follow God's purpose, the other people in your local church, if you're not doing any of those things, then you wouldn't be applying verse 24. So do you see where I'm taking you? When I take you to Ephesians 10 and I show you some of these verses, that what I need to do when I'm applying God's word is not just shine the light of God's word on one area of my life, and I'm gonna, which area are you going to pick? usually the one you just got right or the one you just changed or the one you've been doing consistently for 10 years so that you can go, all right, I, I've got that down. It's important to make that connection, yes, but shine that light of that passage to every area of your life, every area. Let it expose the dark corners, everything. You know, um, Are you following me? Okay, so that's, what, that's why I wanted to take you to Hebrews 10, just to give you that illustration of, okay, Here's what it would look like to say, well, I'm applying God's word, but are you applying all of it? Am I skipping verse 24? Am I, sh- am I shining the light on every area of my life or just part of it? And so that's crucial. By the way, of course, yes, there's no holy number of Sundays. 50, 48, 46, is it 42? I would say it's probably not 20. <laughs> 
you need to be more involved in your church maybe than that. But, uh, but hey, I don't know. Some people, let's say you're a snowbird. Let's say half the year you're up in New York City and you're super involved in your church there and then you're a snowbird. So you move down to Florida and half the year you're down there and you're super involved in that church. You see what I mean? There's no holy number of Sundays. Whatever local church you're in, be regularly involved and, and get involved and stay involved. Don't, you know, if you have an issue with another believer and they hurt your feelings, what does Matthew 18 teach us? Go work it out with them. Go seek peace with them. Don't just go, well, they said this about me, so I'm going back over here. Um, you know, and so, um, yeah, so you take all of God's word and you apply it to every area of your life. Um, last thing, find the principle, then apply the principle. We're still under the uh, applying God's word section right before homework. Find the principle, then apply the principle. What's the principle in this passage? Okay, now that you've got that, how do I apply that? Let me give you an illustration, and this will be our last passage, and then we'll wrap up. Look at Proverbs 22. So hang a hard left, Old Testament, Proverbs 22, 6. I still need my tabs. I still use them. One of my tabs fell out, and I don't know where it is. So I wrote H-E-B and J-M-S there. So I know it's Hebrews and James because I need the tabs. I still use them. Okay. Proverbs 22, 6. This is a principle that you're going to find in God's word. So find it and then apply it. Proverbs 22, 6. What's that say? It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. So here's the principle. Find how God wired your child, their personality, their giftedness, their character, those types of things that he built into their DNA, and he did, and point them to God's calling, God's design. If they're a biological male, you point them to God's design for biological males. If they're a biological female, you point them to God's design for biological females. But even within that, there's more specific things. Is he... It, did God gift him in a certain area? And you think, well, maybe God wants to use that. Point him in that, in that direction. Um, your plan for your child or grandchild or niece or nephew is not what matters. God's plan for them is what matters. So, you know, if, if a father who might be harsh toward, let's say, his oldest son, you're supposed to carry the family name, so you're supposed to do the same job I do. Let's pick engineer. I'm an engineer, so you're supposed to be an engineer. So by gosh, you're going to go to the same college I went to and study engineering, and you're going to take over my company or whatever. Wait a second. Does God want him to do that? That's Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go. It's not the way his dad necessarily thinks he should go. It's the way God thinks he should go. Uh, My dad was a CPA for years and years and years and years, and then when he retired, he offered the business to each of us. But he'd never for one second thought, well, I've got to make these guys do this. No, he wasn't that pig-headed. And so uh, he said, look, he started with my oldest, uh, my oldest brother. My oldest brother worked for Price. My oldest brother is like, is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire, that guy, sometimes he'll go into and saying something and I'm sitting there going, I understood about half that. Can you repeat that for me? And my dad said the same thing. He's smarter than all of us. So uh, he, w- he worked for PricewaterhouseCooper. Now he tells huge companies how to fix their problems because that's how smart he is. He can just look at it and go, that's what you're doing wrong. Um, so he does that for Deloitte. 
But he started working for Price Waterhouse at first. So he's studying accounting, working in accounting. So my dad thought, well, maybe he'll go the CPA route. So he offered him the business. My brother ended up turning him down. My dad's not upset. Then the next brother, well, he's definitely not going to be an accountant. Uh, and then uh, the, the daughter, well, no, she doesn't want it. And then the, the last, I'm the last, the last son, well, no, he doesn't want it either. You know, thank you, but, no, but thanks, but no thanks. You know, not disrespectful, but, and so that's it. Train up a child, in the, because my dad was more concerned, and my dad is actually really good at this. He was more concerned with what God wanted us to do than what he wanted us to do. He never forced his business on us. He never did any of that. He always told us. He said, son, you can be whatever you want to be, but what, is, what does God want you to be? I mean, he, that thought was in his mind for us, and so... Um, that's important. So the principle is of Proverbs 22.6, find how God wired your child and point them in that direction, however you can as a parent. Now, how do I apply this principle? Well, that's going to be unique to your child, isn't it? Um, and each of your children, if you have more than one, should they go to private? Okay, you have to educate them, correct? Um. Should they go to private school? Should they go to public school? Should they go to homeschool? Which one's the holiest option? <laughs> it depends on the kid. Um, a combination, listen, some kids need a combination of those things at different ages. I personally have done all three as I was growing up. I've done home, I've done private, and I've done public. I've done all three. So you might, and my mom was still to this day, will tell you, I think the youngest two needed uh, different things at different ages. And so she tried to navigate that, and she did a pretty good job. So you need to find the principle that's in the passage that you're studying. And then the Holy Spirit's job, remember, his job is to show you, what does Jesus say he'll do when he sends him to you? He will lead you into all truth. So it's his job to show you how to apply that truth of God's word in your particular situation. That's what I meant at the very beginning of the series when I said that you won't be able to totally understand how to apply the Bible unless you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. That's what I said in week one. Because at that point, God puts his spirit in you to be your guide. Some people tend to separate those two, the Bible and the Holy Spirit. I mentioned that earlier, but you, you can't do that. They're inseparably linked. The Holy Spirit is one of the key ingredients in how to eat your Bible. Because it's his job to give you understanding of what this says, to help you understand how it applies to your specific situation, like a generic principle, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. How do I apply that in China in 1942 versus how do I apply that in America in 2022? Those might look a little different. Both, don't misunderstand me, truth is not relative. Both of them are obeying God's word. But the Holy Spirit says, hey, you do it this way. And then he says, hey, you do it this way. They're both obeying God's word. The Holy Spirit's giving them specific instruction on how to do that. So when you, when you study this topic of how to eat your Bible, you can't do it without the Bible, and you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Those are two key ingredients to that meal. Okay, homework. And then we're wrapping up. Homework. Uh, any questions before I hit the homework section? I'm giving you all your final homework. I won't be in here next week. I'm jumping back to financial peace um, to lead that uh, for a little while. I won't be in here next week to check your homework. So before I do that, is there any question, are there any questions about any of the passages or things we went through tonight?
Nothing. Okay. Okay, homework. Number one, choose a translation and particular study Bible. We've talked a lot about that and options there. And a particular study Bible within that translation. For example, I use Jack Hayford's Spirit-Filled Life, but, uh, which I love the notes for. They're some of my favorite notes of any study Bible, but the downside is that it only comes in NLT and New, and New Jimmy, New King James. As far as I know, it only comes in those two. I wish it came in NASB or ESV because I might use one of those, but it, but it doesn't. So find the translation you like, but then also the particular study Bible within that translation. Grab your Bible. <laughs> pick a reading or a study plan, whether that's read through this letter 10 times or 20 or 30 or 5 as I'm reading through it all month, over and over again, I'm going to listen to every sermon I can find on that, you know, let's say Ephesians, on Ephesians. I'm going to maybe buy an extra commentary on Ephesians. Only go to the commentary after you've looked at the Word several times, by the way. Don't go to the commentary first. Um, pick a, so pick a reading or a study plan. We talked about the importance of prayer in this series. Pray, and then read and study. With the, with the question, not first, how does it apply to me? First, what does it say and what does it mean? And then, okay, how does it apply? You can get the extra tools we mentioned, like a commentary, uh, but I would only use those tools after you've read the letter or the passage several times through. Then go consult those tools. Because I don't want their, what they wrote is not inerrant because it's not scripture. It's probably really good, but, you know, we, we're all prone to error. Uh, but this is perfect. So read what's perfect first. Then if you're going to use an imperfect tool, by all means use it. But just understand that it's not perfect. By the way, if I ever, sometimes I've recommended books and somebody said, ooh, it had this in it and I forgot the caveat. Let me just say this blanket statement. If I ever recommend any book to you other than the Bible, it is not perfect. There's going to be, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's going to be ideas in there that I might not even agree with. Um, I recommended uh, The God-Shaped Brain. Uh, it's got some fantastic stuff in there that makes you think this guy's a, a brain scientist, a Christian. But it's got a few things in there that I think, okay, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And that's, okay, so everything, obviously, that's not the Bible has that caveat. Um, so get the extra tools, but only use them after you've read through the passage several times. Then I want you to go and eat all of God's words, not just part of it. He wants you to eat the broccoli and the green beans and try the mashed potatoes and you have to eat, you know, it's all nourishing. Um, Brussels sprouts are not. We, we throw those out. No, it's all nourishing. You have to eat it all. Um, you'll understand him better and you'll grow the way you need to. And then last, every passage of the Bible you come to, don't force your own thoughts or your own structure or your own framework onto the text. I'm gonna, um, I put this in my notes, and I even question if I should say this because I don't mean this disrespectfully to any of you, but if I could just generically say it to everyone. When I come to the text, I need to shut up and let the text speak. That's what I mean. I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean when I come to the text, what I need to do is just let the text speak for itself. I don't need to force anything on it. I don't need to try to put a... You'll find that there is structure, that there is framework, but let the Bible give you that. That's my point. Don't, don't try to force that that you come to the text with on the Bible. 
So any last questions before I pray us out? And we're done. Pieces it together? Okay. Yeah. I think the best thing is that you're even doing that. So, I mean, you know what I mean? It's yes to any of them. Uh, the MacArthur reading plan is a really good one. Uh, you can look his up. Um, I don't know if there's a PDF if you... PDF searched Google, but certainly in his study Bible, I think he's put it in there. Surely there's a PDF somewhere out there with it summarized. Um, so there's, um, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, Machene, M apostrophe C-H-E-Y-N-E. That's a real solid reading plan. I, I, but again, I think the point, yours doesn't sound bad. I think the point is that you're, you're reading Now, there's no right or wrong way as far as what you're saying. Now, what I like to do personally, so if I'm in your shoes, I like to uh, just do one book at a time. That's what I tend to do. Uh, But that's not with the goal of reading through the whole Bible in one year. So obviously that's in there. I I wouldn't, that's just too much. But I will. What I'll do is um, I'll go through some of the Psalms and I'll just read through that section again and again and again and again and study and listen to sermons and study and do, and then I'll go, okay, and then I'll come to Joshua and then we went through Joshua and then we just finished Matthew. So I've done that through Matthew. That, so when I, when I go on to the next book, I'm newer to that book than I was to the last one. I've got the last one pretty solid. I may come back to it from time to time, but, you know, I'm less familiar. So what we're doing in our class next, in our Sunday school class, is, um, is Acts. Acts is probably one of the least familiar that I, me personally that I'm that I'm with. So I'm excited to. It's a big chunk of text, so I'm excited to dig into it. But yeah, those are two others that I would recommend that are pretty solid. If you're if you're looking for the Bible on a certain amount of time, reading plans. You're doing that though. You're already above the curve as far as just man. You're reading God's word. That's great. Anybody else? Anybody. All right. It's like, uh, what did, oh, um, Dave Ramsey, well, he said, uh, he was talking about tithing, and he said, the old theological debate, the ultimate theological debate, do I tithe off the gross or the net income? <laughs> he said, and then he said something like, if I catch you doing either one, good job, you know, kind of thing. So just give. <laughs> Don't. You know, he was just make, he was making a joke of it. He was making light of it. Okay, Lord, thank you so much for uh, thank you for so much for the richness of your word. Um, I can read it this year, and then I, I come to it later again, and I see something. Uh, I saw something new last time. I see something new again this time, and, and sure enough, it's right there on the page. I just didn't see it. So, Lord, as we as we study, um, we can't exhaust the depth of your word, but as we grow in our a relationship with you and our knowledge of your word and then our obedience and submission to apply your word to our lives, every area, 
of our lives, not just part of it. Um, I pray that your spirit would lead us in that. I pray you would guide us in that as we devour everything your word has to tell us. And if we get stuck, if we get discouraged, if we hit, if we hit a rut, that we would understand uh, we have a staff, we have a, a church body here with other members, and we can go to any one of them who know you and say, hey, I was reading this, what do you think, and did you read this? And we have each other for that, Lord. We have you, and we also have each other. So um, pray we would use that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.